This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to cutting through all the confusing marketing BS so you can actually understand how to take action and change your business today. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we're going to talk about how to stay resilient in this uncertain economy by adopting test and learn practices. You hear April and I talk about this a lot as a way to test the waters without fully committing, but we're finding that it still feels a bit nebulous to some, so we wanted to put some structure behind it. And if that's not enough, we also are seeing an unhealthy pattern of behavior with some of our small and mid-sized businesses, which has really been exacerbated with the uncertainty of the economy. And what we're seeing very specifically is when you're doing well, you don't feel like you have to invest in things like marketing and branding because you're doing well. And then when you're not doing well, you don't feel like you have the money to spend to do any branding and marketing. And this can really have a disastrous effect on top-line growth, both in the short-term and in the long-term. Yeah, and, and the goal really is to flatten out the peaks and valleys with a more strategic approach of this process of doing, learning, refining, and repeating. And this is the practice of testing and learning, really. And it can be applied to all aspects of your business to fast-cycle decisions in a more economical way. But since this is a marketing and branding podcast, we're going to focus there, but we'll highlight other places you can practice testing and learning as well. And you know, just as a little aside too, this again is big brand knowledge that we're really breaking down for you. So this is a lot of the conversations and a lot of the processes and a lot of the execution that we, that we have done in the big brand world in our previous slides. That's April and I. So without further ado, let's get into the four approaches for testing and learning. So the first one is leverage an expert panel for quick iterative learning. April, I'm going to let you take this one. Yes. So I will jump in here. And you guys have heard me say it before on the show. And, you know, if you know us as as your partners, I am not a fan of huge quant studies. And that is not what we are talking about here. So the panel we're talking about is really just a small number of folks that represent your target consumer, both psychographically and demographically. And what we mean by that is you may have defined a certain age group or, you know, a segment of the population like moms with kids two to four, you know, that kind of thing. But then along with that, you need to have psychographic knowledge of your consumer so that you understand how to emotionally connect with them. So what things do they like? What things do they love? How do they feel about certain products? How do they feel when they're disappointed by certain products? You know, all of these emotional things play into it. But if you get it right with just a handful of consumers, that is really all you need in order to use this test and learn strategy. So you can source these people really from anywhere. Again, when we used to do the big heavy quant studies, like Ann mentioned in the in the intro with all the big brands and needing to prove things out with numbers, now that we have especially things like social media channels or sites like SurveyMonkey, I mean, you can pop together a quick 10-question survey, post it on your social, or recruit for people before and then send them the survey, and you can get a vast number of answers, but also insightful information from those people if you craft the survey right. 
And you can really leverage this panel however you want to. Um, there are additional ways outside of just, you know, serving. You can hop on the phone with them for 30 minutes. If it's packaging at shelf you want to look at, you can pop into the store with them and look. If you want to understand their product usage at home, not right now during COVID, but generally speaking, you can pop in for a visit and kind of observe. I mean, again, we used to do these big, long studies where it would be hours and days in fields at, you know, multiple homes multiple cities, multiple consumers per day. And that's not what we're talking about here because we, what we believe is that if you are a true tester and learner, you build up your craft of being able to listen really well for the type of information you need. And if you're not asking your consumers to solve things for you, but rather you're looking for information from them to help guide you, that's really the purpose of this. And therefore, that panel, however, again, you define it, can just be that handful of people. And the other part about it is it, it can rotate too, right? So you can pick up a group of people and stick with them for a period of time if it makes sense. You can pick a few different groups of people if you have different segments. Or you can just, like I said with the survey monkey approach, put it out there, see which people match up to your psychographics and your demographics of your target, and then use whoever pops up in whatever order and go about it that way. So tons and tons of options, um, you know, not to belabor the point, but you really just need a few. Right. And I think what you're really articulating here is even though there's lots of options is to keep it very simple. Absolutely. Right. So that it's easy to do this iterative learning because if if you if you select these people well and you screen for them well you can go back and iterate with them mm -hmm. in order to optimize something in a very quick time frame without having to go through all of the screening and in all of that whole process again mm -hmm. or waiting a long time in order to field a study and wait for all the results to come back so keep that in mind in, in just other some other ways, too, that we've seen other people um, do this. And actually, we do it, frankly, ourselves. We do it with our own clients. Uh -huh. So we'll um, test and learn with our expert plano clients and say, hey, let us try this on you. Let's try this like this, this whatever approach we're going to do, whether it's a new coaching style or whether or not it's a new positioning or you know anything like that. So we'll use a, even a expert panel of our clients as ways to kind of test and learn. So. This can be defined in, in multiple different ways, but the, the key is to keep it simple. Know what you're asking for and be a really good listener. Yeah, and people are really apt to help you if they're interested and fans of whatever you're talking about. Um, there used to be the belief that you had to incentivize with a whole bunch of money, and that's not the case either. We feel like sometimes you can just send some product or a $10 Starbucks card if you feel mm -hmm. inclined. A lot of people will do it for free or a very nominal fee or item, you know, such as your product, and you don't have to worry then too much about all those incentives. Exactly. All right. Another approach for testing and learning is to make small bets first. And this is especially true if you're considering any kind of strategic partnership or sponsorship to boost your marketing and really anything that's going to require a big, and I say big in air quotes, spend or investment. And the reason why I put big in air quotes because big is variable for everybody. So it's whatever big looks like for you. So, for example, um, you might find that the NFL might be a good place for you to position your product or your service. Instead of jumping into a full NFL sponsorship, you may want to try like contracting a local player who your consumers may appreciate, even if they're not as popular nationally, 
It's a way more economical approach. And you can see if they work as an ambassador first for your brand. Can they extend your message? Can they talk authentically about your message? Do your consumers react to this in a in a positive way? And then if they do, then you can scale from there. You know, as an example, you know, we live in Cincinnati. Anthony Minos is a Hall of Famer. To this day, that man can still command a room. That's true. And it doesn't it doesn't require a lot of money in order to um, get him to to speak. Um, and he still is very popular. So um, that is like one example of somebody who is like a local celebrity, if you will, that can really help potentially drive a, a meaningful brand connection that is, can help you sense out whether or not an NFL partnership may be a good one for you going forward. Another example, um, if you're in a in a B2B or even if you're somewhat in a B2C and, and you rely on industry events or conventions as a way to connect and, and, and share what's up with your uh, business, um, you might want to try like a smaller presence to begin with instead of like going all in on the big presence. I know it's really tempting to go all in on the big presence because it's pretty magnificent to, you know, have all that real estate dedicated to you. And, and uh, it's, it's very impressive um, it, it, for your, uh, your competition too. you're making the same with your competition, but it can be very expensive. So, you know, you want to like, feel your way into these and see if actually your consumer, or your customer is actually there. Is this a good way to network with them? Even to the point where you might want to just like attend one of the sponsored dinners, uh, for an example, and just you know, network and see if they're even there, and this is a if this is a good venue for engaging them. Another example is you know before you jump into a brick and mortar store, try selling your goods at your local farmers market. Um, I've had several of my uh, friends who were, were looking to start restaurants and, and businesses do this, and you can really try out to see if like people are attracted to your brand, are they attracted to your product? Do they continue to come back? Um, and this is you know like I said, good for like food or goods in general. And then just to round this out with a little bit of a marketing example is you, you might want to leverage influencers as an example to be storytellers for your brand message. But instead of leaning into a full influencer campaign, you may want to start with like a few well-sourced influencers and just track their call to actions to see if you get traction. And then if you do, you can then extend uh, the, the type of influencer you're using to, to get to even more consumers. And if it doesn't work, then you have to determine is influencers the right strategy for your your marketing, or you know maybe it's just those types of influencers. And this is the same approach for any marketing channel, like from billboards to advertising. So those are just some examples of how to make small bets. But you can kind of see how you take like the bigger piece and you kind of scale it down. But some opportunities may not be able to be scaled down. You need to really look for this too. So. For example, NASCAR, when I was working on NASCAR um, for, for Tide, this was one thing that was very, very clear. NASCAR fans will support anybody or any brand that keeps their driver on the track, but it's a visibility play. If you're not showing up on a regular basis, then you're not going to get the traction with them, and you're not going to get the loyalty that is anticipated with that kind of a relationship. So one time or two times is may not actually be a small bet that actually scales to whether or not this is a, a, a it will be a bigger bet for you. So you may have to try a different test and learn approach for this. Yeah, and I think the point that we're making here, right, is these items that Ann just outlined, minus the NASCAR example, are things that you you hear and you think that's going to cost too much money. And that's what mm-hmm. we hear from our clients a lot of times is 
you know, you're crazy. There's no way we can afford these things. And so the point of this is, yes, you know, definitely make your small bets first, but it's also shedding some light on the fact that actually you can do these things in a more economical way that lines up with the spend that you have available for your business to then Yes, test and learn, but also just be there in general. And I think, you know, the NASCAR is a good contrast because that highlights one where it just definitely will not work. So in addition to knowing your consumer and your target, like we talked about in the first point here, this is about knowing enough about the approach you're taking to kind of inherently understand whether or not that would work for you. So NASCAR is an example, right? Ann just said you have to be there all the time. That's a big ticket item. If you're not there, then that's an easy way to opt out of that one. But it kind of shows you the balance of some of these big things really are possible because they're not as big Mm -hmm. as you think. They're really big things. Don't you dare try to place a small bet on those because it just won't work. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, the third approach for testing and learning, you can A-B test within a defined space. And I will tell you, when the creative world got a hold of this one, we had a fantastic (laughs) time because it meant we could test our ideas and some of the clients' ideas. A-B test forever. The B, C, D, E, F test. Yeah. But for those of you that don't know what this is, first of all, this is the idea of picking two ads, or sometimes you do three or four, depending on what you're talking about, and putting them into market and seeing which ones resonate the most. And then that becomes your lead, your next A, from which to optimize and then do the same thing over again when you have wear out with whatever that ad is. This is popular with like... Google ads or pre-roll, you can put your money and divide it a little bit and then not spend as much, right? So you might take your total amount, divide it in half for a period of time, give it some time in market, see how it's working, pick the one that's working well, run that till it has wear out, start again, pick a couple more and just keep iterating that way. This works with social posts, too. So we've talked a lot about use of channel and use of message and how those have to work together for your brand to attract the right people. Uh, You can test here, too. So it might be different imagery or a different message or a different call to action. For example, if you want to, you know, get people to respond or user generated content, you can ask for those types of things. And then again, see which one performs the best. And in this case, you know, it might give you an inkling of future posts. So if you see that really rich, gorgeous, beautiful imagery works versus black and white, you might say, oh, that's something that really entices my consumer, my target to want to engage with me. So, you know, we need to have that richness throughout or that just works better to feature my Mm -hmm. product because it really brings it to life versus the black and white toning it down. And then similarly, you know, with the calls to action, asking people to do something and seeing what happens and then measuring, of course, all of that against your KPIs. So we've talked a ton in all of our episodes about having KPIs, you identify those first and then just see which one tracks better. You can also do this um, before you even put anything out into the marketplace. And this was the traditional practice Mm -hmm. in advertising before the digital space came out, quite frankly. So we would design different ads or billboards or, you know, like pages of a magazine. And we would put them in front of consumers and we'd be, you know, in the back room with the two-way mirror watching what happens. But that was the way to test out what were their reactions to those types of things. Um, 
I think the important thing here, if you're going to test and learn in total, is make sure that you're controlling the variables that could sway someone one way or another. So, for example, with the what I just said about the print ads, you know, we would never show a billboard and then a print ad and then a digital ad with separate concepts. You want to show the same type of ad for each because that then limits people's sway toward like, oh, I'm more used to seeing billboards, so I like that one better. Or I love my fancy magazines mm-hmm. and that looks like a tear out of there, so I like that one better. So you want to make sure that you control those types of variables. But also it's really important to make sure that they're in context when you are testing and learning so that people can give you an authentic reaction that's going to be meaningful um, and react to it kind of like in the space it's going to be in. So with that example, again, if you're going to put a billboard out, you want to show people in billboard context on a sheet of paper, perhaps, or on the screen, what it's going to look like so they can internalize, okay, when I see that among the other billboards as I'm driving down the highway, will I internalize this message versus just putting black and white print on a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper and saying, do you like this message? Without the context, it can be really hard to test and learn. But this A-B approach in total is one we really, really like. We've told you how big of fans we are of testing and learning. But I think this lets you get stuff into market, especially with how digitally inclined we are these days, and get some really fast answers about what sways people one way or another, and then just keep pumping stuff into the marketplace. And the the beauty of it really is that it only exists there for a couple of seconds, couple of minutes, right? So it's not like people now expect that your, you know, digital ad that pops up next to their, you know, shopping cart on Amazon is the most beautifully, perfectly, you know, exquisitely written ad they've ever seen. They're just like, oh, okay, that's an ad from these guys. And then you kind of move on. So all of that to say another way to test and learn, um, really a fan of this from the creative space. I come from in more of the agency world and a place where you can get quick answers. Yeah, and I love this one when we were arguing about design, right? So <laughs> this was one where we're just like, let's, let's just put them both out and test them then, you know, because it, it's That's what it's, I said. It's a, we loved it. It's the best way of getting over those internal discussions and those internal, like, just the do loops that could go on forever. Um, it's just to say, let's just put them both out and, yep. and, and take a look and see what does better. And actually, it should be part of any Google-based ad strategy any SEO, SEM strategy, which is this optimization of dollars based on what's working the best. And that all can be done almost automatically now. So it, it should always be part of that strategy to uh, optimize your ads, your ad spend based on what ads are performing the best. So um, great technique for avoiding internal arguments about who subjectively or objectively thinks it's better or not better. So Also good for fueling some fun internal competition among creative strategists and account people, just as an aside. Oh, yeah. I can imagine that would be the case. All right. Our fourth approach for testing and learning is what we call limited exposure testing. All right. In the olden days, we called these test markets. The olden days. The olden like days. the Oregon Trail. It is. It's kind of <laughs> like the olden days. But now they can take many forms, but you could still think about it as test marketing a proposition, even if you're not actually doing like a actual test market. So for example, here, you can test your new idea by offering it for a limited time. So this could be like a new menu item, a new bundle of product offerings, a new service. It's whatever you want to do in order just to get a reaction to your idea. But you only do it for a limited time just to kind of limit the exposure there and not 
make make sure that you're setting the expectation that it may not be there all the time. And this is kind of like an opportunity for people to give you feedback. You can also do it through a defined location. So you can limit your exposure through a defined location. So this is like more typical test market strategy. Like if you do a new product or a new service launch or even a new marketing or advertising approach, you might want to do it in a like smaller representative market or a single store or a focused industry before scaling bigger. And one of the things we used to love to do is, you know, follow the curve of early adopters versus Mm -hmm. people that come along at a later date. So it wasn't, you know uncommon for us to place stuff like in California if it was going to be a new super healthy trend that was coming out to see if it would be adopted and then indicate whether that curve would continue or if it was heavy fashion, placing it in New York City and seeing Mm -hmm. if it took off. So that way you catch those people who are the trend setters or like we said, the early adopters, and then you can kind of gauge whether that will continue as you roll it out in other markets. Yeah. The only thing you just have to be a little bit careful here is making sure you don't have location bias, right? Fair enough. So, um, and that's what you really have to consider from your scalability standpoint, is that if you're designing something and you intentionally think, believe it'll do well in LA and you put it out in LA and it does well in LA, but then you try to launch it in like a Cincinnati because it's a different consumer, a different culture, a different expectation, a different vibe, it may not work so well. So just be conscientious of like what you're designing for to make sure you don't get that location bias that may give you a false positive or actually a false negative as well. Yep, fair enough. And then a third way that um, you could do this limited exposure is through a group size, okay? So it's a defined group size. And this feels a little bit like expert panel, but you're probably not recruiting these folks. So for example, um, we have colleagues who test new webinar or coaching strategies with a group of college students before launching in prime time. So again, not anybody that they're recruiting, but just a small defined group with which that they are testing this just to get the feedback and refine it and optimize it before scaling it um, into a big format or into a, uh, more people. And what's really important here is that you have to set your KPIs in order to monitor results. And so that's a broken record for us. And we're going to continue to say that. And initially, you may have like no benchmarks or very little benchmarks, but you can always define what success looks like, even if it's within the confines of what you understand about your business and about your resourcing and your staffing right now. Just make sure you have some metric to align success or failure against. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, we talk about metrics all the time, like Ann said, and, and we'll keep talking about them. Um, but if you don't have anything to work against, it makes it really gray and really hard to continue along a linear path towards some kind of goal. And therefore, you are you kind of are questioning, like, why are we doing this again? What are we doing? What are we working toward? And without those goals and metrics, no matter how soft or kind of inconsequential they are to the bigger picture, it's great to have that as kind of your guiding force to have gates that you're trying to get to as you move along. Yeah, exactly. Unless if you don't do that, then everything feels very arbitrary and decisions aren't objective. And we're actually going to get to that in, a, in the trenches question, which is our next section. So this is where we give real world examples. And you know, we'll talk about specific industries and situations, but they really do have broad application for anyone. So uh, we will hit some of those where we feel specifically that the broader application applies, but but listen for the insights and, and we think you'll be able to apply them to your own businesses. And this first one's going to be fun. Are you craving a deeper dive immersion into the topics on our podcast? Then you will appreciate our virtual consultancy. 
Located on the shop page of our website, forthright-people.com, you can now download our digital coaching modules on vigilant leadership, culture building, and social strategy. For the cost of a book, you will get diagnostic tools and exercises to assess your current state and development tools to quickly and intentionally improve your proficiency. These are quick yet effective ways to improve your marketing savvy today. Check it out and let us know other topics you would like us to go deep on. All right. So our first indeterminist question. Can you give examples of how you've effectively leveraged testing and learning? So we'll just hit it right on the sweet spot from the very beginning here. Okay. So April and I are both going to provide two examples here. We're going to provide one that actually scaled and did well and one that actually didn't scale and got killed. So just so you could kind of see killed. both sides of it get killed. <laughs> I mean, you got to just be clear. I mean, indecisive. And we're going to get to that later, too. You learn a lot through failure. Yes. Yes, you do. Um, and I'm going to – I might be a little bit more generally referenced, but I think you guys are going to get the uh, the the insights here still. So um, when I was in Fabricare, we had an expert panel that we incentivized to give us real quick data on – anything that we happen to be doing at the moment. So it was more of like our gut check. And we did this before we really like took it down um, into any further development or design. And and it was really just to understand, hey, is this going to resonate, one, with our loyal users, let's call them our tied users, so we don't actually make them mad? Because once you have an established brand, you got to really consider your loyal users and make sure that whatever you plan to do isn't going to alienate them to an excessive extent. Um, but also we had some other folks in there as well that we could then um, kind of segment out and just see if something that we were testing, maybe from like you were targeting young people mm-hmm. or maybe we were targeting people who didn't use it all the time and only used it occasionally, that we could kind of sense if we were going to, if, if our new um, positioning or ad copy or product may hit them as well. So a lot of this was done you know, during surveys. We used to use a lot of surveys because, like I said, it was like really quick and rapid turnaround. Some of it was um, you know, giving them the product, letting them use the product for a week, and then getting that, uh, that feedback back with a diary, if, if you will. But again, what it allowed us to do was to really figure out quickly are these things resonating? Are they hitting? Is there any like big like uh-ohs that we should know right up from the very front? And again, it was anything from like ad copy to messaging to product ideas to new taglines. I mean, you name it, we would put it in there. So that's one way that we were able to leverage an expert panel on fabric care to get really quick, fast cycle responses that we were able then to iterate upon on a regular basis in order to um, get that knowledge really upfront before we even like took anything further from that. April, do you have an example of one that worked well for you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I probably shouldn't say who it is, but I worked for one of the local brewers in town and they wanted to put on an online survey. And the inclination, like I have mentioned before, was to go a bit more traditional and recruit people and kind of get that, you know, proof of 100 people so it was viable and all of that kind of stuff from a representative standpoint. And so we recommended actually to do one of the examples that we referenced before, which is to have people answer a a short survey online, list their name, and then we would select the people that fit the target 
and reach back out to them and then have them fill out the survey. And there was a concern on whether or not we would get enough responses. So we said, okay, well, let's go ahead and offer an incentive. What do we want to offer? You know, and it was like, well, do we have to pay each person? And we're like, no, 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 no. You know, we're talking about the beer category. You know, let don't you have like packages or, or something that you give out? So we're like, okay, we'll put together, you know, a pack of, you know, I think it was like six beers and then swag from this brewery. And you would not have believed, I mean, it worked perfectly for a few reasons. One, it's beer. Two, it was COVID. And it COVID had just hit. So everyone was home and on their computers. People were drinking a lot more than normal. And so it was very top of mind. And so we just got like, I mean, an overwhelming amount of responses. And then not only that, but I said, can we at least put on the bottom if any of these people would be willing to talk to us one on one? Because you never know. We might get mm-hmm. some hits. And, you know, the real enthusiasts are the ones that we want to hear from. So they should self-select themselves by saying, yeah, I'd be more than happy to talk to you. So not only did we get plenty of survey results, not only did we hit the target, we were able to get a handful of people that were willing to have like a 15, 20-minute conversation, which added really nice context to the survey responses we got because we could probe answers and frame the questions through the, okay, the survey got it 70%, but there's a few more things we want to dig into. And the whole thing went really well. And the, the prize, the incentive, was a single package. I think we had almost 200 responses. Mm. And so all we had to do was put out that one gift basket, which, you know, retails at, I don't know, 120 bucks and essentially costs nothing to the company that's putting it out there. And so that was one where, you know, pat myself on the back. I felt like that did really, really well. It was super fun. The people were very engaged. That does not work for every category. But in this instance, it was kind of like perfect time, perfect place, perfect category. So what did they do with that information then once they got it? How were they able to scale based on that? Yeah. So, you know, for all of you that are beer fans out there, you know that the category, especially craft beers, have exploded. And it was already a really, you know, fragmented category before that even happened. Um, I think the the stat is something like it's gone from 2,000 to over 10,000 breweries in the country in a matter of six or eight years or yeah. something like that. So um, this brewer was kind of trying to figure out where to innovate, where to pull back, and also kind of redefine and reposition themselves in the category because they were finding that they were failing against some of the competition. And so what we were able to do was actually identify that they were not positioned correctly and that their target was not actually their target. So chasing those, you know, true craft beer, like on the edge, like I was saying earlier, adopters before, those people that are willing to try anything and they're, you know, they're out there just to get the latest thing and all of that. That was not this brand. This brand appreciated innovation, wanted to feel cool drinking the beer, but really wasn't that far out there. So the skew proliferation that had happened with this brand was not necessary. The necessary thing was like things like the seasonal that everyone looked forward to or a new seasonal coming out because seasons cued that something was coming, you know, so we were able to pull back really clean up distribution significantly, streamline the portfolio, and redefine the meaning of the brand to where those loyalists that reached out to us were like, this, this is all we want. And now the brand's out there again, and it's been redefined, and there's quite a lot of fewer, (laughs) many fewer (laughs) SKUs than before, um, and they're back on track. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's two things um, I wanted to point out on that. One is it's it's a blend rate of what's 
what people would call consumer research and testing and learning, right? So yes. consumer research is an element of, of testing and learning because mm-hmm. you're really trying to understand where your consumer is coming from in order to address uh, what what option you should go forward with. But what I thought was so beautiful about what you did was, yes, you did. You start with your consumer research and did, and did your survey. And you might have been testing a couple of different concepts, maybe in AB, AB format yep. or just understanding if we did or didn't do, which is another AB format. Um, but then really then selecting the people who are extremely interested to be on an expert panel potentially going yep. forward, right? Yep. So it's a way of kind of cascading into um, or, or actually um, screening for people who could potentially be experts that are going to help you uh, iterate going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could have gone back to that group and then say, hey, is this better? You know, mm-hmm. is this this positioning better? So I thought that's that's a really um, good example of testing and learning. Yeah. And mixed with consumer research. Yeah. And I mean, that I should have said that. You're exactly right, that some of those folks did continue. So since the information was out there and we had talked to them before and, and the, the response was, yeah, call us anytime, then there was and still is. But was that ability to go in and say, here's some packaging concepts, for example, or, yeah. you know, we're, we're thinking of leaning into this space. Does that make sense to you? And all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah. yeah, that really good point that you can continue to leverage and test and learn with them as you go through the process and even beyond that particular project. Yep. I think that's a great example. All right. So let's talk about some examples that got killed. All right. <laughs> so I'll start. Um, so... If you guys are out there and you, any of you are communications or PR efforts, you're going to feel my pain because um, the vein of our industry is that it is hard to prove ROI on communications mm-hmm. and, and public relations. And though, marketing in general. And marketing in general. But specifically, everybody picks on communications and public <laughs> relations, okay? Um, and the reason why is um, because it's very hard to quantify and, and to localize and to define where it's a single variable piece, um, because a lot of times communications and PR is part of a broader program, and that that all when it works together, it lifts the the, the brand all together. So, um, <laughs> so what we were trying to do is we were trying to quantify an ROI for communications and PR. So yes, we were trying to solve all the industry's problems by doing one little like localized test. That always works. Yeah, it always works. Okay, so um, yeah. I'm trying to you de- set yourselves up for failure. I'm, I'm trying to keep a little bit of the resentment out of my voice, if you guys can't tell. But anyway, <laughs> um, we were we, we decided to do this like like a localized test, so a little bit like a, a test market where we um, employed a, a lot of communication tactics from influencers to social, but specifically we were like to, looking to see if the influencers were going to um, raise the bar with regards to sales. Now. Um, Couple problems with this is one is when you're especially even if you're in a localized market and you're trying to analyze sales, especially on a big brand, it takes a lot to lift a big brand. And you guys are probably out there all going, duh. And yeah, um, I don't disagree. <laughs> but um, it, it, what had happened was that um, we got a false negative actually, and saying that hey, um, when you do this activity. Uh, the influencers didn't actually lift the sales, but when we actually dug deeper, what we realized was that there was enough magnitude in order to drive that. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, in wow, it's not a problem as much as it's a reality of influencers specifically, is that unless you're going very ultra local, like with local publications or something like that, influencers still tend to be a national-based uh, influencing mechanism, right? Yep. So. 
to say, hey, we're going to concentrate all this onto one like little city or, you know, one little area in hope that it raises the sales in that area is uh, it's a little. Yeah, it's a little just not really like. That's, yeah. Anyway. Um, well, so- not to mention the the spend, <laughs> right? So you're spending tons and tons of money on this national brand in total. And then you're expecting this, like you said, tiny city, tiny piece. It yeah. just beca- even if it does go up, it becomes a rounding error depending on the actual sp- or against the actual spend. And that's what and that's what's really hard to tease out. So um, I think that's exactly what we were we were seeing here is that we all knew that influencers work. I mean, they do. They work. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. But trying to actually quantify it is very, very difficult. Like we said before, you can measure call to actions and some other things. But actually to see a sales lift with respect to that, it's very, very difficult, especially if you have a big brand. So that's an example of something that didn't quite go so well from a test and learn. It was largely due to like localized biases there when we, we talked about being careful if you can scale it. Um, but also just to the fact that that's just not how that channel works and operates to its best. And we were not, we were trying to make it do something that it was not naturally designed to do. So you got to be careful about creating arbitrary or like non-scalable situations um, and really trying to in in trying to make something work that's going against the grain, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Well, and so mine, um, I actually took the killed very literally because this campaign was killed. It just went away after <laughs> after this. But um so for mine, we were testing campaigns with small groups. So like we've been talking about throughout this, you know, three concepts. We did exactly what I talked about here. We used, um, you know, a network of enthusiasts that were tapped on a regular basis to come in and chat with us. And we put some creative concepts in front of them. And the first round just went miserably. I mean, I can't I can't even put it any other way. Like it just did not go over well, not with any of these groups. And so then what often happens and unfortunately happened in this situation is you're like, well, which one did the least bad of the three, which is a terrible (laughs) place to start from. Right. You had to try to salvage something. Yes. Salvage something, you know, and and, I mean, the client's right there with us. Right. So it was we, we couldn't do anything other than to say, yeah, this just completely missed the mark. And so instead of going back to the drawing board, and I mean all the way back to the drawing board, like starting over with the brief, which we have an upcoming episode that will focus on briefing, that would have tremendously helped the situation, number one, but that also framed a lot of that episode, number two. But in any case, we should have started over because hindsight being twenty twenty, the the campaign we were building and the offering that we were trying to put forth was not going to be something beneficial to the groups of moms aged, I think it was 35 to 55. We were really trying to target more college age kids. And so fundamentally, the research was broken because I have this team of designers who are the target. And I have this offering, but we have this panel who we didn't want to alienate the consumers and we really wanted them to buy it for their teenage sons. And so we ended up with this whole convoluted situation and we only made it worse because instead of going back and aligning all that stuff, we just kept trying and trying and trying. And after the third abysmal round of research (laughs) with these moms, I was like, all right, guys, like, 
time out. This campaign is dead if we don't go back and realign and whatever. And actually, we ended up realizing there were things that were better served to go back to the moms and really use them because that was the proven audience. And at that life cycle, part in the life cycle of the brand, that was the thing to do because it really wasn't as mature as it should have been, all of those types of things. But I will tell you a lot of pain a lot of heartache for those creatives, a lot of anger from the client. But it was just like we were iterating for the sake of iterating and following this test and learn process that wasn't working because the whole idea was broken from the beginning. Yeah. So there's another example of when you get your results, believe them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't believe it. Like, I will never forget sitting in my chair and everyone's kind of looking around. And, you know, to me, it was so obvious. Like, we got to go back to the drawing board, right? And I was like, okay. Well, which one did the least bad? bad. And I was like, you have I, got to be kidding me. <laughs> I've been in that position before, too. That That's real. That That's definitely real. So, um, yeah, if you if – you, <laughs> the moral of that story is when you're testing and learning, you get bad results, it's real. Yes. So um, believe them and make the right adjustments before continuing to waste your time and money. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> I feel like I'm having some PTSD. PTSD. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on. Um, do you have to run tests and learning sequentially, or can they be done in parallel? April, what do you think? Yeah, so science would say that you want to do things with a single variable in order to keep control and really be able to have pure results mm-hmm. that then align and you know the answer is very, very clear and non-objectionable. Unfortunately, that's not how marketing works, and that's not how the life we live in works. We're not in a lab, right? So there's all kinds of Mm -hmm. things that are influencing all of us all of the time. And no matter the size of your brand or your company, you should, hopefully, have multiple touch points and things going on anyway. And this is why it's so hard to to point to ROI when you're talking, talking marketing and branding in total because you can't really say this one thing moved the needle when there's so many other things that are going on. Mm-hmm. So really we say no harm, no foul and running things parallel as long as you're doing it intentionally and that you are not allowing things to kind of come into the evaluation that really aren't affecting it one way or another. And what I mean by that is, so let's say you want to get into social media ads and you also want to test a new package for your product. Those are two things that can be tested at the same time because on the ad side, you're more in the campaign space and that's stuff you can put right out there right away and get some immediate responses. With packaging, that is a longer term thing, honestly, and you go through several iterations and then it takes a really long time, honestly, to get the product on shelf from when you start with that redesign to when you actually see it in store. So you can run those things. You can do your testing and learning. You can have separate projects going on. But the thing that I have seen happen is you don't want some great thing that went really well in social to suddenly find its way into your package and then completely change the direction of, of where you're going. Um, so if a piece of creative gets, you know, a hysterical reaction and lots of people are engaging and you have all kinds of comments and whatever, that doesn't mean that you go then and run change 
and change something that's so fundamental to your brand, like your package, because one little thing that was out there for a few seconds did really, really well. And I've seen brands get really excited and distracted about things like that. And then instead of maintaining their brand essence and that part of them that really should live for a long time, they buy into something fun and engaging that happened over here. And we don't want to see that happen. So just make sure that the intention of what you are doing with each of the different projects remains within itself and fulfills or doesn't those objectives and then keep going along those kind of more linear paths. Not to say that you can't learn things or gather insights or or any of that, but just allow each of the channels or items or whatever they are to do what they're supposed to do in the space they're in. Yeah, I've seen that happen as well. And I think it's about discipline, right? Absolutely. Um, it, because it can inform, one can inform the other. Oh, absolutely. And, and maybe it is something that you learn that you want to apply, but it's it shouldn't be a knee-jerk reaction, which I think is what you're getting at, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is what we see a lot, which is like, oh, that works so well. Let's put it everywhere. And you're yeah. like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Not, you know, just because something worked well on one channel doesn't mean it's going to work well everywhere. And it doesn't mean we should disrupt everything that we're doing in order to apply it. And maybe we should, but we need yeah. to do the proper due diligence in yep. order to understand that. And I think that what you're saying is exactly right, is that sometimes those paths cross um, inadvertently without the discipline, and that causes a lot of turmoil. I also think on the other side that there is an element of compound effects that can happen too sure. that also can lift together. So the one plus one equals three factor versus the one plus one equals two. And so when two things come together and they work together, that creates a you know, more exponential effect. And when those things happen in isolation, that happens a lot in the marketing, going back to my original example and communications, when you have PR out there and then you have social that's supporting and you have influencers all saying the same thing, the compound effect of that raises the brand a whole mm-hmm. lot more to any one of those things individually. You just have to be very clear about what you're putting into market so that you know if it's all things working together um, or if it's one thing that's kind of carrying the two. And sometimes it's a little hard to tell. So sometimes we, you, know, you might want to stagger them out, layer them on, and mm-hmm. just kind of see how they build upon each other. But you also have to be strategic on what leads. So if, if that's all very confusing – reach out to us. We can more than happy to help you like work through a marketing strategy or a test and learn strategy for how to um, do things together in parallel and, and, and the things to consider. And it's an art more than a science. So I'll say that as well. Yeah. This is one of the ones where I like to say it depends. It depends. Yeah. All right. Our next uh, in the trenches question, how do you know you are done testing and learning? And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before when we're talking about what worked and what doesn't work um, is you are done when you have enough confidence to scale it or to kill it. (laughs) Um, And that's really your two options. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything is 100% perfect in order to have the confidence to scale, but you've gone to a point where you know that the risk is worth the reward, okay? And sometimes you can't pull the trigger just on your test learn. You have to do maybe a risk and reward assessment. Mm-hmm. That helps to provide some perspective because it's it's not as easy to say, yes, we're going to do it. No, we're not going to do it. There's resources involved. There's money involved. There's time involved. There's other things going on in your pipeline. So there's a lot of extenuating circumstances. So sometimes you just need to do that. But you should have at least enough confidence in that risk versus reward assessment should help to push you either in the right direction to go forward or the right direction to kill it. And this is where we'll say that your KPIs are so critical. Uh, And you want to make sure, as we said before, that you actually 
believe your data because、mm-hmm. that is very very important. And as we've said already too, it takes the subjectivity out of it. When people will tend to be passionate one way or the other, and their emotions get involved, when you're data driven, it helps to make that decision a little bit more clear. Now, where we see people kind of get stuck in this test and learn loop is when you don't feel like you have enough information to go forward, and you don't have enough information to kill it. Here we'll say set a time frame.、Mm-hmm. So there should be a reasonable amount of time frame that you would expect to see some level of results. If it's still kind of vanilla at that time frame, you probably want to kill it because the chances of it getting to like a chocolate chip ice cream versus just a vanilla ice cream are probably a lot lower because you just haven't at that point in time figured out what that lever is going to be. So you have to continue to kind of see, hey, how much time and how much money and how much we're going to invest in this in order to kind of keep this going, versus okay, let's kill this. Let's move on to something else. So, if it's still at that period of time where it's still kind of just vanilla, and you can't decide either way. You're probably going to want to kill it. Yeah, and this is a bit of an aside, but as Anne was talking, I think it's definitely something worth noting. Even if you end up killing things, or in some cases, especially if you end up killing things, make sure you learn from those things that、Document、didn't work.、It. Document that was going to、yeah. just stole my thunder. That was going to be my other point because you know. People change positions. People get promoted. People leave the company.、Yep. Bosses change. Change objectives. Change the marketplace. Changes, and it's so often we've seen iterations of. Didn't we try this before? And then it's like, wait a minute. What do you mean we tried this before? Or that doesn't even happen. That recognition is completely gone. And then the same mistakes are made over and over again, which costs money and time、mm-hmm. and resources. And there are many things that are just never going to work for your brand. So keep track and make sure that that is somewhere where, as people change, there is a record of what worked well and what didn't and why. Yeah, and just for the record too,、um, sometimes if something didn't work well in the past, it can work again in the future. That is fair. So、That's、don't be、true. one of those that sits there and says, "Oh, it didn't work," you know, ten、yeah. years ago. It's not going to work now. Maybe it was before its time.、Um, so it's okay to bring these things out, dust them off, reevaluate them. All right. So that's my little plug for that. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's just more that the knowledge is power. You know, it was done before, and you can figure out whether to do it again or not. All right, our final in the trenches question: Are there times when it does not make sense to test and learn? Yes, and we have mentioned some of these. So on some, I'll just be making,、um, you know, points to reiterate, and some are, are kind of new things. But this first one, when a scaled down version isn't representative of the full scale. So you know, I mentioned the different locations and early adopters, and Anne countered that point with. You know, making sure that you're not then skewed the other direction, where it's going to work in one or two markets, but not in general, and you're trying to create something that's going to go across the country, for example. So that's what we're talking about there. You know, and that idea of false positive or false negative, really making sure that you're giving it a valid chance to succeed, even though you're doing that scaled down version. So just be really clear on that. And if it isn't, then we would say testing and learning really isn't going to. Teach you anything about that? Just like the influencer example, where it's like everyone knows influencers work. We didn't set it up right, you know. So now we're going against this like generalization that everybody knows, right? And Anne's shaking her head, and I feel like I'm bringing up more yeah, pain. Yeah, just keep so, like. Yeah, sorry, I won't. I won't say、head. anything more about that one. <laughs> 
Um, and then the second example, we talked about NASCAR. And this is, you know, that example of you have to be there all the time in order to be rewarded with people's loyalty. And if you can't afford that or that's not where you want to put all your eggs or whatever the case might be, just don't do that because one or two times isn't going to gain you any kind of lift when it is that type of situation. So just opt out of that example. Or totally lean all into it. Oh, yeah. I mean, if yeah. you, yeah. You just, but if you have a small budget, Going all in on NASCAR yeah. is not an option because you're all in is only a couple <laughs> yeah, right. points of visibility as well. And then this next one, which is one that drives me completely crazy as a runner, is where you show up, but you show up in such a tiny way with so many others in a place where it really doesn't matter to people. And then you wonder why you don't get results. So race t-shirts are one of those for me. I mean, mm-hmm. I have a drawer mm-hmm really probably three drawers full of these t-shirts with all different kinds of logos on the back. I mean, I guess somebody at one point thought, oh, it's a good idea because you're looking at the runners in front of you. So you're seeing the backs and then they're wearing their shirts all day and our names on there. And so why wouldn't they want to connect? Well, the people selling the ad space for those t-shirts will pack on as many logos, first of all, as they possibly can. So some of them get so small, you can't even read them. Mm-hmm. But also when I'm running a race, I'm concentrating on not dying on the <laughs> on the, on the uh, race track right or when's the next water thing or you know what at my pace whatever the case might be and then the people on the sidelines are like on the sidelines right so they're not really paying attention to those advertisements either and the same goes for things like banners at events and sponsorships that are you know you can pay a hundred bucks and you'll show up with 85 of your closest friends on this banner all of those types of things if you're doing it because you believe in the cause, we've, we have our cause marketing episode, or you're doing it because you want to support the efforts that are going on, that is all amazing. And kudos to everyone that does that, especially in the racing community. But that's not going to be a place where you're going to test and learn effectively because you're probably not going to have much of an effect when it comes to selling new business or more product or whatever the case might be. And then the final thing we'll say is, and Anne kind of alluded to this already, if you do decide to go all in, make sure you go all in. And part of that, which Anne loves to talk about and is a genius mm-hmm. with, is asking. Did you say a genius? I said a genius. Wow. I will tell you, I've seen this woman work. And it's asking for everything you want instead of just accepting whatever the other party mm-hmm. is willing to give you. So back to the t-shirt example, right? I just said, don't do that. That doesn't make any sense. But if you could negotiate that you get to be, you know, the biggest logo on the finish line above everybody else and you're lined up with, you know, whatever your brand is in the Flying Pig Marathon and, you know, 100,000 people or whatever are going to see that and they're going to announce your company over the loudspeaker and they're going to hand out tchotchkes and you're going to sponsor the bar down the street and everyone gets a free beer. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. And those are the types of things that people do, in fact, remember. And so there's a lot of limitations when you go to negotiate this type of stuff. It's like you get no 12 times before you get yes. And because everyone's trying to be fair and, you know, not do too much work and stay within the parameters Mm -hmm. of what everybody knows and all of those kinds of things. But ask, you know, the, the worst you can receive is a no. But if you're really persistent and you are willing to go all in, usually you can meet somewhere in the middle and, and get your way. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And 
genius advice actually I called her genius now her head just inflated yeah it, sure, it certainly did um and, and i think what you said is exactly right on it is all about leveraging your investment to the fullest mm-hmm. is that you know if you're going to invest make sure that it's right for your brand not yeah. just what people are telling you they're willing to give because you're right like i say maybe 50 percent of the time if if i made the request i would get the yes, mm-hmm. um, just because it, it adds value. I mean, that's the that's the whole key of this is that you had to add something of value to, um, and all those things that April said are different ways of adding value. So really think about that if you're going to go all in. It's is all the different ways you can leverage your investment both on the platform and then off the platform. So um, great points there. All right, and our third and final segment is generally a real world example of a brand who's doing this well or not well, but it's actually super hard to decipher like what is a test and learn what isn't from the outside um so it's hard to pick a brand on this which is why we really spent a lot of time on that first in the trenches question about what worked and what um or actually what scaled and what got killed um (laughs) and uh all the examples that we provide you along the way so we suggest you rewind this episode back to that and really listen to those and internalize those. And like I said, if you guys are still struggling with this and, and you, you need more strategies or you need more customized strategies for how to test and learn, reach out to us. I mean, it's it's definitely a practice that we appreciate and we actually use on a regular basis ourselves. And also, don't forget that we have worksheets to help you get started on all of our topics for all of our episodes. And with that, go exercise your marketing smarts. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. Mention you heard about us here, and we will give you a free 30-minute consultation. You can also share any topics you want us to cover, which helps us give real-world support to our listeners in real time. And if you learned something impactful, please share with a friend, and don't forget to leave a rating and review on your favorite platform. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.